Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And And this this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we're following up on a couple of very important items. The first of which is an autobiography in books. We've covered uh, children's books, and we're going to explore some other point in our life today as well. We are also going to talk about collaboration versus individual vision and how you can bring them together. And then we're going to wrap up with a an insightful conversation about dialogue. In particular, about whether it's about people listening to each other or not listening to each other. And with that, what are you working on, Elizabeth? I am doing the next draft of my book, The Endless Next Draft. Um, I... Uh, I just have been organizing all the many notes I took through the edit and also in continuing to think about it. I just printed them out. Um, there is called the insert and deepen list um, along with my seven steps. And so I'm, I guess I'm going to take that printed out list, go to my wall of scenes and kind of get that all in there. And then I need to, I think, print it out and read it again, making those changes Um yeah, I'm in a little bit of a like, how do I go? What do I do next? And how long should it take me? Because I think I need to set a deadline. So I'm, but I'm a little awash in filmmaking. Well, I was going to say that. Um, <laughs> you have not had much time to get to your writing because you've been doing a lot of producing. Yeah. And I will say that, um, you know, in my lying awake at night thinking about things, things, I was thinking about how great actors are. Like how much mm-hmm. I love them. And it reminds me of reading prose in craft class and getting to really get into the nuance of sentences. And I think, of course, that's what actors are doing, um, which will also come back when we talk about listening and not listening in dialogue. So I don't know if being a producer is uh, is a creative art or if it's something else. Although I guess Seth Godin sort of says entrepreneurship is now an art. Everything's an art now because that's the way we have to approach life we have to be creating something new and offering something that connects people that that's sort of the new world we're in and so that requires practice risk-taking practice of art but in any case uh i guess that is whether it's art or not it's certainly taking time how about you what are you working on well i've continued to uh work on the film i have been reaching out we just we did auditions we had a spectacular time doing that and again very grateful for all the people who showed up and really impressed and to see you know that that change between what you put on the page and what someone else brings to it so that's a really interesting experience to have you have it over and over but I think it also changes with the individuals and as you get to see each person bring their coloring and shading and all of that. So that's been very fun. It also was really, for me, very illuminating of the script mm-hmm. to have people actually enact it. Yeah. Now, once it stopped being mine, it was much better. <laughs> and um, so in that, and then I've begun sort of reaching out and working with crew and kind of getting us squared away on that. So that's been exciting. And I will say that one of the things I love about you is how much you love all those things. Like you love the tech stuff. I mean, you can write the script that's hilarious and nuanced and brilliant and then go have a conversation about like lenses and I don't even know what. And you like love that piece too, which is so great for being a filmmaker. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we'll come in handy, save us some money. Um, so that's what I've been working on. Awesome. 
All right. So well, let's um, talk about that autobiography of books. Yeah. So this is what we stumbled into is that you were like, okay, let's go to middle school. And I was like, middle school, I don't know. I don't know. And I mean, I know I was a voracious reader and I'm like, oh, kind of, oh, Emily of, of New, Moon. New Moon, I loved. But I don't have that same thing that I have for childhood and then sort of for college, which I will say in my own defense, I started college at 17. So it's like high school. It was, <laughs> there was sort of a lot of trauma that I know I was reading through, but perhaps I was just blocking everything. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, I remember reading things and I, I guess what I'll say for the middle school, I'm just going to go first, is um, the books that I remember that kind of stand out for me are not books that are sort of warm my the cockles of my heart beloved as so much as intense like um bonjour tristesse which i think is francois sagon i believe maybe i'm not maybe that's wrong anyway it'll be in the show notes um very sad little book about a uh, womanizing father um and a and a young daughter you know who is watching the, these relationships and um and kind of ends up sabotaging one that might be more mature because, you know, she can't handle it. And um, I don't know, it was it was very, I guess, autobiographical in a certain way. <laughs> I don't think I sabotaged, but I think my dad did. Anyway, so that was a really sad book. Um, I feel like there was another really sad one. But anyway, that, that, that just, it was more kind of um, this, this sort of adolescent coming to terms with life and how complicated and sad life was um, I wasn't very protected I think um, well you know it's interesting that you're talking about that because our kids are in fourth grade right now mm-hmm. and they are in a combined four or five class and I'm looking at the things they are reading and you know are part of the classroom library so they aren't necessarily reading the books I'm about to list but um a lot of them are either really scary, like the Goosebumps yeah. one, horror, or really sad, like, uh, you know, old yellers, you know, mm. four or five, four or five, six. Yeah. Um, I think that there's something about the age that mm. also reflects the kinds of stories that um, the kids are actually experiencing. You know, there mm. are things in their world that are scary and that feel out of control or bigger than they are. And so it's sort of thrilling to read these books where they get to practice having that fear mm. and coming out of it, but also having that grief, having that, those things, the world's opening up. So it's interesting when you're like, oh, these things that hurt my heart. And I think at the same time, you know, we use literature as a way to sort of practice for life in some ways. And so yeah. I think um, just seeing I mean, a lot of stories about kids surviving in the wilderness at this age, a lot of stories about um, you know, and as you get into, you know, that kind of um, dystopian future that mm-hmm. seemed to be like a runaway genre for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And again, for slightly older kids than ours. But, you know, I think that it really speaks to even though our world is changing and we're more integrated and all these things that kids are coming to terms with different life lessons and um, that their literature, the things that they buy and are excited about reflect those lessons i guess so yeah it's i mean it's funny because i i i mean i did read voraciously through this whole time period but i also think of plays i mean i loved musicals and i loved um and 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 certain movies like um nine to five mm-hmm. was you know we what we sat through it twice <laughs> we might have been a little late so it might have been like but you know 
and just laughed our heads off because it was so reflective of, you know, my mom's life as a secretary and all of that. And um, I remember there's one line where, where one of them says, no, I don't want to talk to the dog right now. And it was like, I was always saying to my mom, do you want to talk to the dog? So anyway, those were sort of some of the more lighthearted things. Yeah. How about you? Um, well, I think I think also those sort of middle grade novels don't stick with me in quite the same Isn't that way. Interesting. Um, I do remember um, my dad had a bunch of Hardy Boys mysteries, which we read. Oh, loved. Yes. Loved, so, uh, not you know, but we, I had a somewhat rural childhood. We were not going to the library all the time and doing that kind of stuff. The library we had was at school was, you know, great, but it wasn't big. And, um, and so I think that my experience was what did my parents have left over from their childhood? That's mm. how I became... <laughs> You know, that's that's how the Oz books were introduced to me because they had been my mother's, the literal copies that my mother had had as a child. And the Hardy Boys books, I think, may have been the literal copies that my dad had. And so we had, you know, some books that we would get, but we didn't have, we weren't awash in options. <laughs> so I think that's part of it. Um, and so I think that also meant, you know, uh, I think I, I told you this as I was graduating eighth grade and it was sort of the summer before my freshman year uh, I was laying around reading and um, my dad had a collection of Hemingway novels and I think I was reading A Farewell to Arms or something and you know, my dad's like what are you reading and I said you know Farewell to Arms and he's like well Hemingway is eighth grade here it's time for you to read some Herman Hesse <laughs> and so this you know like, Antigone is you know preschool right and then and then Hemingway yes. middle school um, and so that really just, I was so excited about Hesse in, in high school and reading Damien and reading about the relationships in that book. Um, you know, certainly were things I missed because I was that particular age, but it was engrossing. And I loved Hesse all the way through college or, you know, all kinds of things. Um, I read a bunch of his stuff, Glass Bead Game being one of my favorites. Um, so... For me, uh, it wasn't really until high school that I got sort of the emotional piece in that same way. I remember reading East of Eden. Oh, that was amazing. East of Eden tore me apart. Incredible. Yes. Incredible. So. Yeah. I want to say, um, and then I have a question about this, but I just want to say that I also remembered poetry was huge for me mm. in this. Uh, Alice Walker, like high school, early high mm. school and, and all the way through, but through college and whatever, but um, uh, Alice Walker's, you know, little volumes were amazing. And um, then my mother was given a gift uh, of this book of, I think it's called On My Way Running, you know, poems by women or something. And I just loved it. It was like this wisdom, this like distilled wisdom about how to live. And I, you know, still remember lines from it. But I have a question for you about the books you've been mentioning, because in the childhood segment, Really, what we discovered was that the worlds and the kind of the magic of the worlds were, were that was sort of a key element. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you mentioned emotion here? I mean, do you think it's it's shifted from the the worlds to something else, like the ideas or the? In certain ways, I never identified with Dorothy Gale. Right? It wasn't Oz Gale. Um, Helen Ozma. I loved Ozma, and uh, if I did identify with Ozma, I think. You know, I think that was sort of more of my nascent gayness, you know, that, 
you know, the story of Tip becoming Ozma, the story of, you know, the relationship that Ozma and Dorothy have is like these best friends and, um, you know, just, you know. But back to the later books. But the later <laughs> books, um, for me, like East of Eden, I really connected with the cow. I, you know, like the, the cow character was mm-hmm, someone that mm-hmm. was just really, really understood that desire to want someone outside of yourself to love you enough mm. and that was something that you know I think is very teen angsty <laughs> and um, and I would say with Hessa it was the worlds were still there yeah. you know very much so I mean they're very e- even though they aren't um, fantastic in quite the same way uh, they were foreign enough to my own experience that I think the worlds did draw me in yeah Great. Well, um, we would love to hear from other people about the this journey through uh, life in books, mm-hmm. in life in books, and we will continue to step up through the years yes. uh, in future episodes. But let's talk now, uh, as we're kind of in the thick of this collaboration, mm-hmm. about collaboration and vision. Tell me why this is coming up for you right now. Well, I'm in the middle of talking to people, connecting with people. Uh, around doing this project with me and you know you're the first person (laughs) that I had to have that conversation with but with each person I meet I need to kind of see do we connect as people does the project connect for them Um, but also where in my vision, whether it's my production model or the story or how I see a character behaving, where does my vision uh, need to step aside and how do I assess that? Right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I think, um, I mean, is it ever just the gut sense of, oh, that's a better way? Well, honestly, I think, you know, it sounded really intriguing when I proposed that question. But I think what is true is that if you're coming from a place where you don't have confidence in your vision uh, and you're stepping aside for someone else's, that's almost always the wrong answer. And if you have confidence in your vision and you understand why you have confidence in your vision, then I do think you have that gut reaction of like that takes it even further. Mm -hmm. That takes it where I love where it's headed and it resonates in alignment with your vision. Yeah. You know, when I was in graduate school, I had this period of time and maybe a little bit afterwards because I was getting workshops so much. Um, and I could see, and then I was also witnessing the same people who were workshopping me, workshopping other people. And so I, I became, it became very clear to me when something, something was helpful for me and when it wasn't. And I just, I don't know, it was this blissful thing where I could say, that's what I need. And that's not what I need. And it wasn't always in the moment. So I would write down notes as I was listening to people. And sometimes the thing that seemed brilliant in the conversation of the workshop would later turn out not to be helpful. And the thing that seemed so irritating and like they just didn't get it all would turn out to be really helpful. So it wasn't in the moment. And that's why I just wrote, 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 and just shut up and took notes. But later I just trusted my gut. And I don't know why, except for, I think being immersed in that practice. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Heather about, you know, when, she, you know, if you, if you kind of have this, always have this voice saying this is terrible, how do you know when it's terrible but worth sending to an agent versus terrible uh, revise it? You know, how do you, mm-hmm. 
how do you get there? But it's an int- it's an intriguing question in part because we're talking about collaboration versus mm-hmm. feedback, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and I, you know this is something that is culturally different. We keep coming up against this is like the filmmaking community is collaborative by definition. You cannot really make a film entirely by yourself. There are people on YouTube who are doing it and you know but even though they're on stuff, YouTube. Right. But wonderful stuff coming out of all the experimentation, but ultimately at at a very minimum, let us say you have a cinematographer, a sound person, and an actor. Who wrote it, right? Right, right? So at the minimum, let's say you have a three-person crew, you all have to have like a vision, yeah, and um, you all need to know when to pull in someone's and who holds it. So you have that idea of the director, but you have a director and a producer, and a producer might have a slightly different vision than the director. Well, it reminds me of our short, Little Mutinies, yes. which we directed. We had, you know, in, in fairness to us, we had two sort of approximately one-year-olds, mm-hmm. and um, we co-directed. We co-wrote it based on your play, Little Mutinies. Mm-hmm. We, we wrote a short, and then we um, and then we co-directed it, and I thought of it as sort of a drama, and, and you thought of it as a comedy, and I directed it as a drama, and you directed it as a comedy, and it was really sort of dependent on who was needed with the babies. Right. It was like, who started nursing? <laughs> yeah. Who, who who was nursing and who was, I mean, really like hour by hour, who was directing. It was hilarious, really. Um, but we didn't find that out until much later. Right. And I, but I think that one of the things is, is, you know, when I was not doing, before I was introduced to the filmmaking world, it was really hard for me to take notes. Not because I thought, oh, you don't just get to be it. Clear, clearing what, clarifying what you mean by take notes is take someone else's notes on your work. G- g- be given. Feedback. Right. Because, um, you know, in filmmaking, people go, why don't you have this person do this? It's like a radical new introduction of idea and action. And no one's like, well, you didn't write the screenplay. And there there's is that ownership. There's still like, oh, okay, someone can add something in. Whereas in, in fiction, when I would get notes from people... I was like, okay, well, how can I take what they said and change it in such a way that is still authentically mine? Because if I in, interject someone else's idea, then it's not authentically mine. And You're, you were so worried about it. I was hugely worried it's about it. It's funny because my writing group, I mean, we've talked about this and everybody is like, you can't worry about it. People, ideas, you know, you can't copyright ideas and they're gonna, we're gonna influence each other. I mean... Uh, you know, when Jonathan Safranfor and Nicole Krauss were married, I mean, they were writing books that were very similar to each other. I just, well, the guy I was just talking to about possibly being a DP was like, yeah, I'm writing a script myself right now about a group of friends of a certain age coming together to spread ashes. So, <laughs> um, you know, so it's, 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 and the truth is, you could you could give him the plot points and insist that he put them in, mm-hmm. and it would still be a completely different film. Exactly. So, yeah. um, so anything you want to keep in mind about collaboration and in conjunction with your individual vision moving forward with this project? Well, I think it's you know again going back to that idea of confidence. I think being able to articulate my vision and being committed to it, and you know. When I'm up in conversation with people and I have that sensation and I have a physical sensation that says, 
this is harder than it should be mm-hmm. um, to trust that. And it's a hard thing to do. And I think the more confident you are in your vision, it, w- it was interesting. I was watching this video with this guy and he's like, look, somebody's on set and I am, they're not into the project. And I can tell, like, I don't say like anything mean, but I'll just say, you know what? Maybe this isn't a good fit. And the sooner you do that, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, which because, is so hard to imagine. Right. Well, but you keep saying, you know, you say my vision and that's what it is. It's not the vision. It's not the truth. Mm-hmm. It's not even the best idea. It has to be yours. And and then you choose people to be your team. And so then you, you are open to to their ideas but like but again with the filter of is this expanding the vision or is this kind of veering off mm-hmm. into some other direction yeah right mm-hmm. yeah it's great really great and i do think even though prose feedback is very different from collaboration some of those issues apply mm-hmm. um so i just want to say a couple of things about auditioning which is not on yes. our agenda because because it came up when we were talking about this and i just uh, um, oh, well, I think partly it's to do with, with collaboration, which is that you're picking people for a role in conjunction with other roles in conjunction with this team. And, and I guess, you know, when, whenever I get to be on the side of the person picking, mm-hmm. it gives me so much information about when I'm on the side of the person submitting, mm-hmm. right? And to remember how... People say, oh, it's not personal, and oh, there are all these other factors. But you just get, when you're on the picking side, how profoundly true that is, how not personal it is, how much there's there are so many factors and so many nuances. And it doesn't, I mean, it certainly doesn't mean that someone we don't pick isn't amazing, fantastic, and might not be our pick for a different part in a different right. film, right? Like, right. might beat out someone else for something else, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it doesn't evaluate talent. It doesn't evaluate... I mean, we certainly saw talent and even a range of experience and all of that, but it just blew me away, that that piece. And, and the other piece that I felt like in terms of sort of self-advice that I learned was, um, you know, to walk in and to be yourself, and to, which is like another one of those things that people say and you just don't get it. Like, it seems so hard to do to take Mm -hmm. that advice. But when you're sitting there watching people, it's like, you're not, they're not even, it's not about really how they sort of what they present of the role or what they interact with the piece of paper. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's who they come across as. Well, yeah. And one of the things that's true about um, filmmaking is again, you're also looking you're looking for that talent and you know you there's all these stories about hollywood talent who are you know atrocious on set but at this level like nobody can really be atrocious right no one's gonna be so so, so, like you're, a, so you're not dealing with madonna of sebastopol right um so you know i didn't run into anybody who felt like that in any way shape or form um but if someone were, you know, to be offended by what the content of the work was, right, if that was something that didn't work for them, and again, we're viewing an LGBT film, and they, if they had issues with that, that would be someone you wouldn't want, you know, irrespective right. of how great they were as an individual. This is a group of friends who are a diverse group of people 
Um, so you really wouldn't want to bring on someone who was like, uh, all right. You know, it's like, yeah. no, no, these people love each other and you, they love each other in the totality of who they are. So your actors need to really feel comfortable swimming in that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And then, and then I guess the last thing about it that I'll say is, uh, though I think we could do a whole podcast on it, but is, um, that people who put, who act between the lines, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the deepest thing. Well, that might actually lead us into our next that's exactly great true. dialogue, listening or not listening. So there, and you know, you watch the, this, we filmed it, so we watched it later and there are just people who, you know, say that the, the whole side, the, the piece of the script they're reading from, they might have four or eight lines in it, but for some people, they kind of focused on the lines and for some people, the whole time was, was the character evolving and so you could watch it and it was the parts in between in some ways that were the most profound and I do think that applies to prose which is of course my my I guess heart's passion that you know and with dialogue that it's so much about what isn't said or what the gestures and the actions are the things and the, the details of the world that kind of come through between the things people actually say that's what's where the heart of it is well and I think that in prose when you're doing that you indicate listening by your pacing so if you're if you have a lot of short sentences if you if you you know you've you've read scenes where it feels like there's space between the comments that the characters are making and reactions they, other yeah. than verbal right because we do right. react and and, and it's all that wonderful stuff that someone notices the details that they notice as they're kind of being told their you know girlfriend is pregnant and <laughs> Uh, you know, those different things help us pace that and make the space that I think actors make mm-hmm. in film so that, you know, if people are just on top of each other's lines, clearly they're not listening. Um, and that might be the point of the scene. So it's not that it's inappropriate, but that when you have a scene where people are really listening. Um, and then the other thing is when you look at something like comedy, you don't actually laugh when someone's being foolish. You laugh when you see the person who is stuck in the world with them having a reaction. So the listening is really where I think most of the comedy happens, Mm. right? So (laughs) you can imagine being that person just not understanding how they ended up, where they ended up, and why they are faced with what they're faced with um, in the strange behavior of whatever foolish person it is. So, um, you know, I did a lot of conversation about Elf, but I think about that scene where he's in and he's talking to the um, children's author. Where the Elf is? In the movie Elf. When he comes in and he's talking, he's interrupted James Conn's meeting with the children's author, um, who is a little person. And so... He keeps making these comments about elves. about elves because he's come from this place. So the context is wrong. But what's happening is it is so out of place and we find it funny, not because of the things that he is saying or his foolishness even, but because you can imagine being that person saying, shut up. <laughs> What are you doing? And you can feel that tension right there. So it's I not- think you can imagine both of them, though, because you, you realize that he is not meaning to offend, that he's just in a completely different context. And 
keeps going, keeps going. And, and somehow I feel like both people, I'm like, oh, I can sort of sympathize. But the reaction is what makes it funny. Mm-hmm. If no one in there, if, if someone said, oh, no, no, buddy, this is what's right. happening, then that would be one if it thing. Were preschool. And right? Came if it was together to and we stopped everything and we talked about it. <laughs> but what makes it funny is that we see their faces the group of people around the children's author who are horrified and don't know how to move forward. And we've all sort of been there in that way, but it's not the words that are funny. It's the reaction. reaction. Interesting. Okay. So the reason this came up for me is because on the podcast script notes, and by the way, it is tripod month where you recommend podcasts. Mm. So, um, I mean, if we had, more time in the month, I feel like we could do it. I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts. Actually, she could do an entire podcast about podcasts. Absolutely. But, um, but script notes is a, is a podcast, um, by screenwriters or for screenwriters about things that are interesting screenwriters or something like that Mm -hmm. anyway. And they were talking about the importance of putting sort of listening tags into your dialogue, like, well or you know or I don't know not a lot they actually didn't say put they don't you know they, they didn't think you should put like or you know and unless it was like a comic beat or something that had to be there but um but kind of uh-huh I don't know anyway they had these certain kind of things where they were saying like make sure that the character is listening to the other character and kind of responding and for me when I look at again prose dialogue on the page um, and when I and when I hear my students reading, very often um, there's a lot of kind of throat clearing or 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 kind of mandatory response. So one character says, you know, "Hey, how are you? I lost your wedding ring." And the other character says, "I'm fine, thank you. How are you? What are you talking about?" Right? Like as if they have to respond to each thing. Yes. Whereas, whereas of course they would go right to like the thing that was the most important. Mm-hmm. And and very often there's some listening and responding, but there's also their own agenda or their minds racing so fast that their response is five steps down the road from their first internal response. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, so, so what's interesting, uh, this is actually making me think about a book I read that was about a, by a British director about acting. And one of the things they said was react, then say your line. Mm. So you would have a physical reaction to whatever was happening, and then you would say your line. So that the line really wasn't the thing. And, and, and how we as consumers of media see and respond to that that moment. Mm. So um, mm. it's interesting. interesting. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, there's more to talk about with all of this, but it is time for... Steal this. Amateur poets borrow, said T.S. Eliot. Professional poets steal. What have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to take and make your own? I'll go first. Um, I am now listening, only sporadically because I only have a CD player in the car, to um, The Girl on the Train, the audiobook. And... um, I was driving to a panel in Petaluma that I was on last night, and I was listening to um, to it. And um, the first narrator, so there, it shifts, I, I think, among three narrators. Uh, the first narrator has a very idealized picture 
of these other characters, whom she actually, it, it evolves but early on, uh, doesn't actually know at all and is only making up names for them, making up lives for them. She's got this whole kind of very idealized view of them. And then the second narrator is one of them with a different, you know, obviously her actual name and, and her actual life. And it really reminded me of the distinct impressions, you know, a character will have, a, a different characters will have about, say, a single character. So in my own book, thinking about, you know, the daughter's impression of her, her no longer around mother, the father's impression of his no longer around wife and how different those will be. And then the media's impression of her because she's famous, right? So like, like all the different and very distinct senses of a character and how interesting that can be in the disjunctions between them. So you start to want to know, well, who is, what is true and who is this? And also you learn so much more about the narrator, narrating character by what they say about someone else than even by the character they're describing. Mm-hmm. So that I really did. I thought, okay, I mean, I wrote a note to myself. I actually dictated a note to myself because this is all happening while I'm driving, saying, make those portrayals of the characters from the different other characters' points of view very distinct mm-hmm. and then play them off each other to raise questions. So how about you? Um, I'll be honest. I'm somewhat ill-prepared for this stealing. <laughs> um, I think, well, you, you know, you were just talking about the, something with the lens and the lights but i didn't fully understand what, that you wanted the bokeh yeah yes. the bokeh from saturday night live uh yeah so basically the alex de Buono, um is the film unit cinematographer for saturday night live and he was talking about basically you can put a filter over your lens and you cut out the shape of what you want to show up in the bokeh. And the bokeh is like when you uh, have things that are out of focus, that got light out of focus, then it will show up in a particular shape. So, um, and people have certain things that they like, you know, so a lens will affect the shape of the out of focus lights in the background. We've all seen um, Mm. sort of, you know, imagine someone with those, hanging lights that are ubiquitous now and uh those are out of focus well if you use a filter and you cut out a shape that's you know there's a mathematical correlation to this length of the lens and the size of the love this stuff kind of do anyway uh you can make those out of focus lights into in focus shapes and so um so weird so they did it on saturday night live but he got it from uh, so he himself had stolen it from <laughs> wedding photographers who had done things like uh, hearts. Um, so the, the bokeh, those out of focus lights in the background would be in the shape of hearts or, <laughs> you know, snowflakes or whatever. Um, and, and they did it for Saturday Night Live. And you're like, I'm going to use that. And what I thought would be fun is like either in the credits or in the fundraising to put the characters' names into the out of focus uh, lighting, the bokeh. Awesome. Say you get to steal tech things, too. So please write to us at questions at storymakersshow.com. Please uh, go to iTunes and review us. Um, It's not as super intuitive as you would think, but but if you you have to sort of click on the, the show, not the episode, 
Um, if you do it on your computer, it's easier. And then go to reviews. And then um, I think you have to scroll all the way down and click add one. We'll put it in the show notes. We will. It's because, geez, Louise, iTunes, don't make it so hard for people to go. And then you say how many stars? One, two, three, four, five. And then you write a little description of what you love, like, or hate about our show. And just so you know, five is the base of the pentatonic scale, which is what a lot of guitar solos are based on. So use that when you think about (laughs) how many stars to give us. That's obscure. But uh, we so appreciate reviews. They really help uh, spread the word about Storymaker Show. And uh, we hope that you have a wonderful ride.